This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all you guys. I hope that uh, you have an amazing day today. By the way, there is uh, some people making their way around, passing out some jerky for all the men, so uh, please make sure and grab some of that. You know, we, uh, we, we give chocolate on Mother's Day, and we give jerky, you know, on... Uh, um, it's like man candy, you know? I don't know. I just anyhow... <clears throat> all right. Don't read too much into the jerk part, okay? <laughs> yeah. Good to see you this morning, Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life, another installment of the Gospel of John today. But before we get into that, I want to remind everyone, please make sure if you have your baby bottle uh, filled or not filled, would you please make sure that those bottles uh, make their way in today? Uh, they've got a table out there and are collecting those baby bottles uh, for the ministry of a new generation and so if you haven't uh, gotten your bottle back, please, that's part of their accounting system is these actually the bottles themselves. So if you would, please be sure to get your bottle back. If you forgot your bottle and you want to do something amazing today and just write them a check, I'm sure that they would be happy to receive that check. And then if I could ask you, please make sure and still bring the bottle in because they still need the bottle. All right? All right. Very good. Well, let's jump into the Gospel of John this morning. <clears throat> As I said over the last several weeks, continue to say, for those who haven't been with us the whole time, you know, the theme of the Gospel of John is eternal life. And so uh, throughout this series, uh, we've been looking at how that weaves its way through. Uh, We've even pointed out that specifically uh, that not only does the words eternal life or abundant life appear throughout the text, but also within the text, uh, the references to the word life are typically the Greek words sozo or zoe, uh, indicating not biological life, that would be the word bios, uh, but the idea of a transcendent experience, a, a sense of quality of life that is abundant, that is giving uh, and, par- and imparting to us the sense of what it means to belong to Jesus, that you and I, uh, being filled with the Spirit of God, then have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, uh, that we have now, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, begun to experience an entirely different kind of life that would be like, John chapter 4, being born again. It's completely disorienting to the kind of life that we had before. It is a whole new kind of life where, in which we die to our old manner of life, and live to this new, abundant, eternal life that begins not somewhere in the sweet by and by of eternity, but begins the moment that you and I believe. The emphasis here being that not getting you into heaven as much as getting heaven into you in the present. Today we're going to look at another, uh, you know, rather long text. Last week, I, you know, I, it's kind of the longest one we we're going to cover. This week we are beginning to look at a a discourse that covers multiple chapters. We're not going to go over multiple chapters today. You can breathe your sigh of relief. I won't do that to you. But but what we are looking at is the opening part of a discourse that includes the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking across the lake, walking on the water, 
Uh, also uh, followed by that is the discourse about the bread of life, uh, Jesus at the Feast of Booths, etc. And all of these tie together really into one bigger picture. Uh, you know, they're usually treated entirely separate. I'm going to do my best to kind of hold those pieces together for us over the next few weeks. I'm going to reference some of the things that we won't necessarily read today. Uh, but let me encourage you to do this. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, let me invite you to read John chapter 6 and 7 together. So we're, we're looking at three weeks total, and I would encourage you, like Saturday night or Sunday morning when you get up and you have your devotional time, it won't take you that long, but if you'll read chapters 6 and 7 together, uh, it will help you hold all these pieces together so that you can have a better understanding as we continue on over the next three weeks. So uh, all the better if you could read it even a couple of times. Or maybe even, you know, like, dare I invite you to listen to the message again over the coming week so that you'll have the big picture in mind. Anyhow, jam-packed text, no good way to break it up, but we're going to try anyhow. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have, the one in your lap, always my favorite. Let's take a look. John 6, verse 1, we read these words. And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled Twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough, with a strong wind was blowing, and when they rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> so, 
you know, we, we get those two miracles there, and of course there'll be other things that we're going to pull together. Uh, it is interesting to note, um, although not as significant to our discussion today as it has been in the past, but I, I want to make the note again, uh, this is the second time in the Gospel of John where he has explained the Passover as a specifically Jewish practice, because by the time that John has written this in the latter half of the first century, uh, that the Christians were not practicing these feasts. And so he had to explain that the Passover was a Jewish practice. In other words, that the majority of his readers would have had no idea what Passover was or why it was being practiced. Now, secondly, for the sake of the bigger picture, let me point out today that <clears throat> this text is closely followed, like when we, as we get into next week, one of the first things we're going to read about is this whole discussion about Jesus is the bread of life, and so uh, it fits together with the context of, you know, that anyone who should come after him should eat his flesh and drink his blood. So next week, you have that to look forward to. I know you're excited about that. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I am going to kind of reference some of this today, is that there is that theme is running all the way. It's beginning here as we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and this idea of them uh, being dependent on Jesus as the bread of life. There's some vague you know, shadowing here uh, of dealing not only with Passover, but the Feast of Booths that we will talk about over the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's some shadowing here also uh, in terms of the manna in the wilderness uh, that all play in <clears throat> a part of this. So you have to forgive me, this allergies are driving me crazy. All right, so, but I want to start us in the text today with taking a look at verse 15. I know it's in the middle, but verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let that sink in for just a moment in terms of how we think about uh, Jesus and how he relates to us, um, and, and also in terms of just uh, a lot of pop Christianity. Um, maybe even you might think of, when I was a child, I remember thinking uh, when I was learning about Jesus being crucified for the first time, I can remember sitting in my CCD, you know, my catechism class at St. Patrick's downtown El Paso, Texas, and they were talking about what they were doing in terms of crucifying him. And as a child, I became quite distraught, and I just could not understand, like, why doesn't God, like, intervene and rescue him from that situation, you know? And, and man, you know, like, how could they do that to Jesus? And it, it got me all worked up. And, and yet, here we have this, like, clear picture, verse 15, of Jesus, you know, understanding the crowd that he's ministering to and withdrawing from them very intentionally. Not at all like the plans that we would have or our way of doing things. Our way, of, of course, of doing things would be, you know, we'd start a big 
campaign, advertise everything, you know, make sure everybody gets the word out. We probably have mail outs, maybe, you know, a text thing going on uh, or whatever. Want to make sure everybody knows. We get a big crowd together, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, proclaim him as king and, uh, you know, then summarily, you know, marshal the forces to go beat up everyone who disagrees with us. Hello? Ever feel like it? Probably, right? Your text might say that he knew their thoughts. I, it doesn't specifically say that, but, but he certainly knew what the crowd was about <clears throat> and what was happening. And, and, and in the midst of that, understand that part of their excitement and their desire to take him as king is that they recognize the moment that's just happened. They've just been fed, and they're in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I don't know how much was said in the, ways, uh, in the way of it all, but there is a clear understanding on the part of the crowd that a, a miracle has taken place, a first-order creative miracle. I, we're not just talking about uh, you know, the idea of that someone's prayed for somebody and their headache has gone away. I, we're talking about like a, a radical, you know, it's only, only in church do we ever not see this as like this crazy, huge miracle, right? I mean, uh, it, it's right there with the turning of water into wine is the multiplication of the bread and the fish. Now, to kind of give you a picture, what we're talking about, first of all, <clears throat> we're talking about a child's lunch. When I say five loaves of bread, please do not hear, you know, like French loaves or the loaf of bread that you bought at the grocery store, right, with like, you know, 20, 30 slices in it or whatever, although that's still not going to go far among 5,000 people. But I want you to think like the word here literally means like a dinner roll. There's five dinner rolls, and then a few fish. Understand, we're talking about like sardines. For 5,000 people, right? And so you've got a handful, you've got a kid's lunch. Anybody here think, that? yeah, I just always give my kids sardines and dinner rolls. Um, but um, if you're Galilean, apparently that's like, you know, peanut butter and jelly, I'm glad I didn't grow up in Galilee. So um, anyhow, we've got the, the, the sardines, we've got the five rolls of bread, and uh, I, I don't know if Andrew is being snarky at this moment, uh, you know, uh, or what his intent was, uh, but he brings the, the, you know, the, the young man, the five roll, dinner rolls, the couple of fish, and uh, I don't. I, I kind of even wonder. Like, is he waiting for Jesus to do something miraculous, or is he being snarky towards Jesus? Is he being snarky towards Philip? I don't know. There's, but there's something going on here, right? There's these social dynamics. Wouldn't you love to be like a fly on the bush, not I guess in the middle of nowhere, but you know, to have seen and heard what was going on. Not no no telling, but. You know, in the midst of that, Jesus asked them all to take a seat and is grouping them into, you know, groups. And I can't imagine what's going through the disciples' minds at this time. We've got 5,000 men plus women and children out there, uh, and, uh, you know, you're asking people to sit down. 
I don't know, maybe you're thinking I'll make a run for it while they're seated before all these big you know, fishermen get up and clobber me. Or I, I don't know what the thought is, but they're having all these people sit down and Jesus prays over this bread and this fish. And then they go out and they give everybody all they can eat. It doesn't say they just had enough or whatever. It says that when they all ate and they were satisfied. I didn't want you to think about just the, the magnanimous nature of one dinner roll feeding a, a thousand people till their heart's content is set. And, and I don't know how many sardines a grown man eats in Galilee, but I'm betting it was more than the sardines that they started with, right? And so you've got this whole dynamic going on. I mean, we're talking about the multiplication of something. It, it, so there, there's only so many fish. And I, you know, I, 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 I've heard all kinds of different, you know, tellings of it, of tearing the fish or whatever. I, I think we're just talking about they just kept reaching in and pulling out more fish, right? Because uh, that's usually the way sardines are served is whole. And, uh, and so you're, you're eating these sardines and you're handing out this bread and at the end, we have this thing of where the 12 disciples go out and they pick up 12 basketfuls, you know, could be symbolic of Israel, could be just simply the fact that there are 12 disciples and so that's why there's 12 basketfuls, um, could be, you know, um, just simply a statement of, uh, of the fact that there was more than enough. It, uh, all I know is that 5,000 people got fed from a single boy's lunch. And you just like kind of need to let that settle in your head and heart for a moment of just what a magnanimous, what a what, gigantic miracle that is. You know, o over the years in praying for people, I've seen some pretty amazing things happen for people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I, I can remember even being at a life group one time and like a whole bunch of other people showed up and we were we had a lasagna for life group and then instead of having like the eight people that were supposed to be in the life group like 30 people showed up to these friends of mine's house and we were like what do we do and we just prayed and we just kept serving lasagna and we and everybody ate and i was like wow that's pretty cool but i got to be honest like one plate of lasagna feeding 30 people is not nearly as impressive to me as one child's lunch feeding 5,000 people. But either way, like, it should be one of those moments, right, that gets our attention about what's happening here, how magnanimous, you know, how incredible this is. This is a first-level creative miracle. It's jaw-dropping. And a lot of times we just kind of read through it when we're reading our Bibles and we go, oh yeah, and, you know, and Jesus fed the 5,000, like ho-hum, you know. Uh, oh yeah, that story, you know. But there is this amazing moment and that ripples through the crowd. And in the moment of all of that happening, they're thinking to themselves, this guy would make a great Messiah. Now, Keep in mind what I've said over the last several weeks as we've been looking through John, right, is that there are numerous people claiming to be messiahs. There are, are, are literally hundreds, if not thousands, 
claiming to be Messiah even during the time of Jesus. We know that going back uh, into the last uh, few years, B.C., going into A.D., that we're talking in a period of about 100 years, there are many, many people that claim to be Messiah. And so no telling how many uh, actually in the time of Jesus as, as he uh, was ministering, but there were multiple people claiming to be Messiah. And one of the things about that is, is that they would make this proclamation and then their, uh, their, their cadre uh, that they had gathered there, you know, eventually at some point would declare them to be the king, to be the Messiah. They would raise up a, a militia and, you know, to uh, try to seize power, to take control of things. And then they would summarily be stomped to death by either the Romans or Herod or whatever else. And so there was this whole kind of political climate where there's these rabbis rising up, these teachers rising up over and over and over again. And every time they are taken, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, by force, because it was kind of a declaration that this guy must really be the, you know, the Messiah. He's more important than other Messiah figures in the past is that we seized him and we made him become king. Actually, church history is filled with some similar examples of times when uh, like uh, different bishops uh, had people around them gather them and take them by force to become a leader or whatever else. Um, I'm always suspect of that, specifically, in fact, because in the New Testament, one of the qualifications for someone to be uh, an elder or a pastor, a bishop, uh, whatever one of those Greek words you want to pick on, um, but one of the qualifications is that they be desirous of doing it. Not desirous in the sense of a fleshly, like they want to control people or something else, but that they should have a heart, a desire, an inclination toward doing it. You don't really want someone to be the overseer, the caretaker, the you know, protector of the sheep that doesn't want to do it, right? And in fact, there are many warnings throughout the Old Testament about the problem of shepherds who feed themselves on the sheep, uh, who don't love and care for. Uh, there's references in the New Testament about the idea of a pastor who then uh, doesn't uh, defend the sheep, who doesn't care for them and protect them, and how this, this is a dangerous model of behavior, not something we want to encourage. And, and of course, you know, if you've been paying any attention to things like maybe the Roy's Report or some of the other, uh, you know, uh, Christian journals uh, of recent uh, time, and we just know that again and again and again, we're just seeing examples in the media of superstar pastors falling hard and shamefully in front of uh, the whole world in a way that is... Uh, really, really tragic, and um, uh, it just grieves my heart to no end. And the reality is, is that, you know, uh, uh, when, when people feast themselves on the sheep, there's nothing more uh, painful or damaging than that. And sadly, you know, one of the things that we've done a lot of times in the church that's promoted that kind of culture is that we, we put people that are behind the pulpit in, uh, in our minds on this level where they, they can't, you know, they, they're over everyone else, they're better than everyone else, 
And I just got to tell you, it's just not true. You know, hopefully by the grace of God, that person is truly and earnestly walking with Jesus and can say to you in all earnest, follow me as I follow Christ. It does not mean that I or anyone else is a better person. And it certainly is, you know, like not a position to be worshipped or honored in a way that harms others. And if a person, I don't care if the church is growing or not, if that person behaves ungodly, unchristlike, mean-spirited, and regularly has a way of demeaning other, other people, I don't care how big that church is getting, that person needs to be dealt with. That's sinful behavior that shouldn't ever be tolerated. So um, Jesus sees this moment, and you just look at the, 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 the difference in the character uh, of Jesus in this moment in contrast to those other messiahs. He sees what they're up to, and he runs. He recognizes the, you know, the, uh, the gap between their popular messianic ideology and what the Lord, what the Father has called him to do. In the midst of that, of course, there is some reality that everyone who rises up as a political pretender uh, gets killed right away. That could be a good reason not to be, let the crowd go ahead and take you by force. Uh, that, that would be a good idea, you know, just in itself. But then also check out here that, you know, as uh, this is all happening, that Jesus quickly pulls himself out of the situation, goes up on the mountain, sends the, the disciples away. He's trying to disperse the crowd as quickly as he can. He separates himself from the situation. And then he goes and he gets alone with the Father without the other disciples. So he's sending them across the water. Maybe some will go that way and get out of here that way. Uh, but also that his need to go and spend time with the Father. He's trying to recenter himself on the heart of the Father, the will of the Father. Uh, everything in this says, I want nothing to do with what the multitudes want. You follow that in verse 66 with his statement about feeding on the flesh and blood, feeding on his flesh and blood. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me, you know. And we get to verse 66 and they're all like, ooh, like that's a hard saying. And it says that the multitudes leave him, they all went away from him. I want you to notice the tension here between the authentic discipleship of Jesus in which he is teaching people, raising them up, giving them direction, and the, that crowd type of mentality that would just simply give in to that moment. He, Jesus is not using populism to draw the crowd. Uh, even in the case of the majority of the miracles, they tend to be more on the individual level this is one of the few that happens on the large scale uh you know that that happens there and then when he walks on the water following this like who's watching that just the 12 disciples right and they don't even really get it in the moment so i i want you to understand here that that jesus doesn't do all of these things for effect 
He's not doing it to please the crowd. Now, like I said, in our mentality, our thought is, is, man, we need to get the biggest crowd possible to see this. We need to have the biggest event possible in the city so we can win people to Jesus. We need to have the biggest concert crowd. We need to have the best this and the best that. And, and ours is always kind of centered around this idea of, well, kind of manipulating people in hopes that they will get a little bit of truth. Which is completely contrary to what Jesus does. When the crowds are gathering, see, they didn't come to see big events. They're gathering because of what he's saying and doing and teaching. It's interesting to note, so Jesus recognizes, he perceives what this crowd is all about. This doesn't mean he's not kind to them, doesn't mean he doesn't minister to them, but he doesn't give himself to their geopolitically motivated messianic ideology. The whole thing about the Messiah as a political figure, overthrowing Rome, these kinds of miracles like would have stoked that fire. That's why there's so few of them. They were thinking, this guy can like raise our armies from the dead, right? I mean, he raises the dead. He can feed our armies on a single sack lunch. You know, I mean, he must be the Messiah, right? I mean, and they've got all their plans. And, and yet, all, in the midst of all their bad interpretations, listen, I want to make the point, Jesus is not his fault. He's not stoking the fire. He's ministering to the people who are, far out there and nowhere near the food and things like that. On the other hand, it's not like anybody was going to die if they didn't you know, get the food out there. He, there's this sense of compassion in which Jesus is ministering to them. It's true. On the day Jesus was, you know, was crucified, if he'd wanted to, he could have called all the angels of heaven and mopped the floor with the blood of Roman armies. But that wasn't what he was doing. It wasn't what he was doing in this moment. It wasn't what he was doing on the cross. You see, the, the message they were supposed to be getting, both in the multiplication of the food, the message you and I are supposed to be getting about what Jesus did in walking on the water, uh, the thing that we're supposed to be getting all the way from Genesis chapter 1, when we're told that he is the divine Son of God, uh, as we continue through chapter 1, and we're told that the message of John the Baptist is prepare the way of Yahweh who is coming. Let's... We are, I am called to make the paths level, to knock down the hills and to fill in the valleys so that the way of the coming king is ready. Quoting uh, that ideology behind uh, Roman emperors coming when they would send squads ahead of them to prepare the land. Uh, other armies and kings would do the same kind of thing to make it a great appearing. And yet this is differently focused. And so the picture over and over again is Yahweh God is among you. Not that Jesus was a prophet, but instead the prophet is the one who comes to prepare the way. He's the road crew, if you will. And then when Yahweh appears in the flesh as Jesus, this is part of the 
proof as part of these nature-defying, creative miracles that testified that Yahweh, the one who put all things in order, who set the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens and all that, that it, in fact Him that has come. And the Apostle John wants us to get this and, and bit it deep into our spirit of who it is that is being addressed here. He doesn't need the crowds. He loves the crowd. He loved them enough to feed them. He loves the world enough to send His one and only Son, right? He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He, there is this sense in which in the mercy and the compassion of God that He cares about everyone, but there's also this sense in which, listen, He is not giving in to the direction of the crowd. When you and I look at that whole picture, and then we think back on some of the other th- miracles that John has told us, right? Because if you and I were just reading the story, we would be pulling all of these things in together. We wouldn't, we're only six chapters in. Uh, I promise you that if tonight you go home, uh, it won't take you but about 20 minutes to read chapters one through six. You could read it all in one sitting pretty easily. Uh, if you're a reader, you. That, that'd be nothing, right? I mean, if you're a reader, if you're not a reader, it'd take you a little work, but you could, you could do it in one single sitting. And you and I would hold together not only all that John said in John chapter 1, but, and, and, and all those, but we would also be reminded in the midst of this of how John 1 opens. And it says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, and uh, we would read that, uh, you know, how he turned not only the water into wine and fed Uh, the 5,000 and the walking on the water and all of those things happening. And we would be getting this really big picture of these amazing things that God is doing. And most of them are done on a very personal level, not in the way of trying to impress the thousands, but in this way of conveying deeply to the hearts of those who would listen who He is and that He cares. And that his compassion is for the lost, the last and the least. He's not spent all of his energy on kings. He's not spent all of his energy on the elite, although he has not ignored them. But simply that he is full of compassion. And you and I have this deep-seated need for him. And whenever we call out to Him, that even in knowing our hearts, that He hears our prayers. Right? The midst of the 5,000, He knew their hearts, and yet it didn't stop Him from feeding them. I'm reminded of that sometimes whenever I'm tempted to decide on how I should help someone or not help someone based on whether or not um, they um, uh, deserve it. Ever made that test? Has anybody ever failed your test? Mine too. And so there's this recollection that Jesus is the kind of God who helps you and me 
not just when we don't deserve it, but specifically because you don't deserve it. And that there's something really dangerous about you and I walking into the place of determining whether or not somebody deserves the grace of God, His mercy. You and I ought to walk into that situation with a sense of fear and intrepidation that we would not deny people the heart of God based on our own likes, dislikes, and ideas of who is worthy or not worthy. That could be true of evangelism. It could be true of showing people mercy. In any myriad of ways. Jesus recognizes, listen, he doesn't give himself over to it. And one of the things that you and I grab hold of is that phrase in there, that one greater than Moses was in their midst. But what we should also note is that these are the people who so desired for Messiah to come. These are the people who so wanted relief. These are the people who were hoping that something would, that was about to change in the midst of it. And yet they missed it. How did they miss it? How do, you, how do you attend and you go all the way out in the desert and you eat with the 5,000 and everything, and how do you, you miss that? How do you listen to the other teachings of Jesus and miss it over and over again? And the answer is, is that, well, you hear in a way that you miss the point. For them, is that they were so camped on their eschatology, their end times theology, their messianic scope and understanding of the world, then rather than let Jesus be Jesus, rather than let God be God, they miss what God is doing. Can I just say to you, like, end times are a great discussion. Right up until the point that you make it the main thing or a line in the sand of fellowship. You know, within our church, we have people who hold amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. You know why? Because despite the fact that I think it's a really important discussion, I'm just unwilling to let it be the main thing or become a test of fellowship here. I personally, I'm a pan-theologian. You know what that means? It's all going to pan out. I don't care what your eschatology is. Jesus is the one in charge, not your eschatology. Right? And so, like, listen, my personal eschatology leads me to believe that we are going through the fire. If your personal eschatology is the one that you get out before that all happens, I hope you are right and that I am wrong. I am praying for you to be right. I, I, there's nothing in me that wants to go through that. Anybody here just want to go through tribulation? Anyone? Anyone? Nobody raising their hand. It's shocking. I've never seen anybody raise their hand on that, on that one. But, but listen, I have to be honest with you. My eschatology says, yes, we are, and I want to prepare you for the worst. 
My eschatology is much more married to Scripture than it is to American idealism. Oh, I love my American idealism. Don't, don't miss the point. Don't get lost in that. I'm just simply telling you my commitment to Scripture says, yikes. And my hope is, get me out of here. Amen? All right. Sounds like we're on the same page anyhow. And so I think, listen, following Jesus also ought to impact our thoughts and ideas, including our politics, right? But not the other way around. If your politics steer the course of your church or your personal life, rather than letting Jesus steer it the course, I, listen, it's ex- that's exactly what the Jews did in the first century that caused them to miss Messiah. So I'm not like harping on anyone. Please don't hear me harping. Hear the real sense of caution on the part of a shepherd who cares about that you not losing your way to your politics. We have people from both sides of the aisle in this church. There's very few churches like that anymore. Most churches have squarely put themselves in one camp or the other and driven out the people who don't agree with them politically. Oh, God, help us. Because that's exactly what the Jews did, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, their their war with one another, their war with the Herodians. Like, listen, they did all that same garbage. And it was first and foremost driven by their politics. And they had clear markers in the sand. If you believed in these politics and not these politics, that meant you were lost. Hello? We ought to be afraid when we think like that. It scares me. We need to make sure that Messiah drives how we look at people, how we look at the world, and don't let our politics become our Messiah. And then when it comes to like the, all the signs and wonders and stuff, you know, like, I mean, like, this is this beautiful picture of how God has like come in and intervened in their world and he's invited you and I to eternal life and the expectation that God is going to work and move in us. And so we have this expectation that God hears our prayers. We have this expectation that he will visit us in the midst of our afflictions and our hardships, our trials and our difficulties In some of those situations, our expectation is that He will deliver us from the midst of those. And we look to that and we go, man, I love it when He does that kind of stuff, right? And so when we get healing, when we get free from uh, gigantic financial burdens that are crushing us, whenever we experience just grace and mercy in unexpected ways, and we can put our finger on that and we can go, look what God did, and we celebrate together. But then you and I also remember the picture is, is that oftentimes he's the God who weeps with those who weep. He's the God who goes to the cross 
He's the God, according to, Ephesians, according to Hebrews 4, has suffered in all the same ways that we have suffered, struggled with all the same things that we have struggled with, and yet is without sin. And there's an invitation to you and I in the midst of that to walk with Him, to trust Him in the midst of all of those difficult times, and to believe Him in the midst of those, regardless of our particular outcome. Listen, I believe in healing, I believe in miracles, I pray for both. But at the end of the day, like, what I'm seeking is the God of those things, not just those things. Amen? Amen? In the midst of all of this, I'm looking at my time here. I'm about to run out of time, so I'm, gonna, like, I'm just going to wrap it up here because we're talking about this for the next three weeks. But I, I hope in the midst of this, like what, what you, you, know, you recognize is that even though Jesus was, did not succumb to their demands and their wants in the way of moving politically and socially and all those other things, that in the midst of that, it, it, you never would get the idea that he didn't care or that he wasn't active in his world. And that the idea of abundant life, of eternal life, is not one that is controlled by the circumstances in which I find myself, but it is in this sense of that transcendent, of his life within me, and that as I'm going through the storms of this life and I move toward the the, the, the final and ex expectation of eternal life, that, my, that that eternal life is infused into my present life, gives me meaning and direction and clarity to act, and it gives me the confidence that when I cry out to Him, He hears my prayers, and that many times, that in the midst of hearing my prayers, not only will He comfort me, but He's also the God who will deliver me and it doesn't have to be because the stakes are high. Can I just point out that to you? Like the feeding of the 5,000. I really doubt that anyone was going to perish along the way if he didn't feed the 5,000. These are tough people. This isn't people that, you know, get three squares a day like we do in the United States, right? These are tough people that often go days without eating and stuff just because of the nature of uh, supply and demand in food and so forth in the ancient Near East. These are not weak people. They're not going to have a fit because they didn't get their lunch break. And yet Jesus is compassionate to them. In the, in the wine at the wedding, you do realize that, I mean, nobody dies of embarrassment, right? I mean, if, if they had not gotten the wine and the party had ended, it would have been a real bummer. And everybody in the community would have looked at them and gone, wow, they didn't have enough wine for that. I guess, I wonder if they should have even gotten married. Maybe they're not even ready for this yet. They couldn't even provide for a good party. How are they going to provide for one another? And it would be a legitimate question to ask on one level, although not too critically, right? Most young people start off their lives kind of on the thin side financially, right? But nobody would have died of embarrassment. And yet one of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible happened on their behalf for a small crowd of people 
to continue enjoying one another's company and to celebrate this wedding. Huh. See, it's not the greatest need. It's not that we manipulate God and tell Him, but my need is bigger. It's that we trust in the heart of God for Him to act on our behalf and we believe in Him. Let's stand together. So, you know, a couple of things come to my mind this morning as we're like examining this and we're thinking about what it means for Yahweh to be in our midst, uh, for the, the God of heaven and earth to, you know, make His way among us to give us His Holy Spirit. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I, that strikes me strongly is the confidence in Him, that you and I would simply, like, uh, trust Him and believe Him. And I think a big part of trusting and believing in the Lord is not just simply mental assent, but it's actually intentionally, methodically, like reorienting ourselves with Him as the center of our being. And so you've heard me say this a number of times, but I, I can't emphasize enough that spiritual formation and the practice of spiritual disciplines is a great way to kind of retrain ourselves to think, you know, uh, each, in, in terms of eternity, to think Christ-centered, you know, centered, to be... Uh, Real, authentic followers of Jesus. That can be, you know, in reading the Word. It can be getting up each morning and doing some time of worship and refocusing. It can be involved in, like, memorizing Scriptures, especially Scriptures that you and I struggle with. I, I think sometimes, in the, you know, the, the thing we always do is we, we like to memorize the Scriptures that we like the best, you know, because uh, that's easy, uh, and, uh, but also the thing is, is, it makes it easier also to kind of lift it out of its context and say things with it that were never meant to be said, you know. Or you and I could do, in a very purposeful way, look at those really challenging contexts and that we look at those and we begin to think about who God is in the midst of those things and we commit those things to memory. We begin to stretch ourselves, to challenge ourselves, to think from a biblical worldview instead of the worldview that is so crashing in around us and over us. I think fasting is a powerful tool for helping you and I to kind of like separate ourselves from everything that controls us in the moment and for us to be utterly dependent upon the Lord. And so there are a number of things like that I would say to you that would be really important in terms of you refocusing your sense of who you are around Jesus. And so there's you know, kind of three steps in that. One, that you and I have a vision of how to move forward, of what a preferable future is like in Jesus. Second, that you have actual intention to do those, you know, to do something about it. Uh, you know, you can wish and hope all day long, but if you don't have any intent to move forward, nothing will change. And then third is the means by which you do it. If I see a preferable future and I am willing 
but I have no means. If I'm waiting for Sunday mornings to convert me into a different kind of person, if I'm waiting to get zapped with the magic wand of Jesus somehow, I will tell you that it will be a very disappointing experience in Christ. But if you will take those things, that vision, that intention, and then you'll begin to use the spiritual disciplines to reshape your heart and mind, I promise you it will bear great fruit. It's the way it's been done for thousands of years, and it's never been done better by anyone else. Secondly, just, you know, I'm certain that there are people here who need a breakthrough when it comes to your faith, whether it's in healing or uh, it's in some physical need, uh, maybe something else going on in your life. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite the prayer team members to come up, and I want to invite you, please come get some prayer. There's not anything less about getting prayer. Sometimes I think we have this, like, spiritually defunct idea that somehow that people who go up for prayer like are only people who are struggling or aren't spiritually mature or aren't strong or whatever um and i want to tell you i think it's just actually the opposite i i think there's that that humility and be able to come and get some prayer and ask other people to pray for you is central to you and i experiencing the power and the presence of god so prayer team members go ahead and come on up let's pray and then we'll be free to go you can go have your you know hamburgers on the grill or your steak depending on you know your ability to do that (laughs) and uh and enjoy uh, a great father's day i hope for you father god we want to thank you for your kindness and your mercy that's at work in our lives and we ask that you would be with us uh even now lord as we close out our time together, we pray that the evidence of your great love for us would be manifest in our hearts, that you would begin to work in us to will and to do your good, pleasing, and perfect will, and that we would join you through the disciplines. We would join you through spending time in prayer, seeking your face, of allowing our minds to be stayed on your word, of singing and bringing glory and honor to you, of abstaining from things that are good for the purpose of going deeper with you. Lord, for generosity to be birthed in our heart, not only in terms of like giving to a church, but Lord, being generous on all accounts with all that we have and all that we are, that the world would know us as a people who are generous and not stingy, a people who are generous and kind and merciful and patient, compassionate, persevering, Lord, that your fruit, the fruit of your spirit would be manifest in our lives toward one another and toward the world around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, Would you help us to continue to reach others? 
by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.